From Michigan Radio, this is It's Just Politics on Stateside. I'm Colin Jackson. Kicking off today's show, we'll hear part two of Zoe Clark's candidate profiles from Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Last week, we heard from Democrat Alyssa Slotkin. Today, we'll hear from Republican Tom Barrett. Then, I'll be joined in studio by a panel of journalists to talk about what's at stake in Michigan's hotly contested congressional seats. Also, Republicans in Michigan have nominated three black men for Congress. How are these candidates being received by a largely white voting base? And we'll talk about the political inroads Republicans are making in traditionally Democrat-leaning Dearborn. So let's start first with Michigan's new 7th Congressional District. This district covers the capital city and stretches toward Brighton. It's one of the most competitive districts in the country, and its outcome in November will help determine which party controls the U.S. House of Representatives. Republican State Senator Tom Barrett is challenging incumbent Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She's represented the district for the past two terms. Zoe Clark has been digging into the race. Hey, Zoe. Hey, Colin. And yeah, as you point out, this district is one of only a few dozen true toss-ups nationwide. So with these conversations with these candidates, I was really interested in better understanding how each of them thinks about representing constituents who might disagree with them in these really polarizing times. So I spoke with Congresswoman Slotkin last week on the show. So this week I sat down with State Senator Tom Barrett, and I started by asking him what it's like to be running in such a competitive race that's getting such national attention. It's uh, it's a lot of work. Certainly it's a lot of intensity. My kids see ads on YouTube and they see ads on TV and a great number of them are attacking me. There's billboards up attacking me in my district as we drive the kids to school. And, you know, that's part of what you sign up for when you sign up to run for the United States Congress. I understand that. I've run in very tough state legislative districts in the past. All three of my general elections for the state legislature have been very competitive. Most recently in 2018, that was widely perceived to be a Democrat wave year. I was running in one of the foremost competitive state Senate districts, and I was able to win by 10 points. So it's a challenge. you got to get up every day and work it hard. But it's one that I think is worth pursuing. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't really care about the trajectory of our country and wanting to see us take a different path than we're on right now. Well, talk to me a little bit about it while you're on the ground talking to voters. Yeah. What are you hearing? Yeah, we hear a lot about the cost of living from families just like mine. I live in Charlotte with my wife and kids. We're raising four kids. My oldest is nine. My youngest is not yet two. And they're facing the same challenges that all of us are. The cost of living, everything from a gallon of gas to a gallon of milk is far too expensive. And when the Congress and the president spend trillions of dollars, just inject that into the economy. It devalues all of the resources and currency that we already have. And then you layer on top of that other problems that families see as well, gas prices. And now we're going to soon enter, a, you know, it's going to be a cold winter in Michigan and home heating costs are going to be far more expensive this year than they were last year. But then we're also seeing an increase in crime. Lansing, several other cities in Michigan now rank among the most dangerous cities in America. And we have a border that's unsecure and people see that and feel that. This district is 1,500 miles from the southern border, but every community in mid-Michigan is now a border community because we have fentanyl just pouring into our country with no enforcement whatsoever. 
that's a real struggle, and families are seeing that. When there is a sitting incumbent, elections tend to be a referendum. Instead of looking sort of backwards, I'd love to hear a little bit about some of these particular issues. What are your plans? I mean, yeah. given it's one person, but I'd love to hear about some of the policy proposals that you would be interested in seeing. Yeah, to your point, it is one district, one person, one seat in Congress, but each of these are critically important. I mean, the Congress is very tightly you know, a uh, slim majority for Democrats right now. The Senate is divided evenly, so the tie-breaking vote goes to the vice president. So the Democrats have been in control, albeit in slim margins. I ask people, I say, you know, if you feel like America's on the wrong track, like I do, then I think we need to elect new leadership and have a check against the Biden administration. We have a choice in this election. Are we going to continue down the same path, record high cost of living, fuel costs, home heating costs, and everything going up higher and higher? If you see crime on the rise in a border that's unsecure, if you think America is on the wrong track like I do, then I think we need to elect new leadership. And that starts right here in this district, one of the foremost competitive seats in the entire country, certainly the most expensive congressional district in the entire country right here in mid-Michigan. And I am committed to being that voice of the families and the working people who want new leadership and want to bring about change in Washington. And I want to get to that, but I, I want to give you another opportunity. So that is all sort of where we're at, yeah. right? So talk to me a little bit about some proposals. What are you pushing for on yeah. day one? Well, we certainly need to secure our border. I mean, that first and foremost is not just a threat to our country from a security standpoint. You know, I talked about the fentanyl crisis and everything that we're facing, but we've had more than 2 million people cross the border illegally just in the last year. So I think we have to secure the border. And then we have to start unwinding some of the disastrous spending that has come out of the Biden administration that's been directly enabled by the Democratic leaders in Congress. It's really not that hard. You know, it might not be easy from standpoint of telling people we can't spend money on that, but the actual knowledge of what it takes to bring inflation under control is not that hard to figure out. Let's get back to the district. As we've noted, it is one of the most competitive Democrats and Republicans that you would be representing. Recently, you were named one of the, if not the most conservative member of the state Senate. How do you go about representing both Republicans and Democrats? Sure. And I, you know, I would say that I have a principled voting record in Lansing, but I also have an independent voting record. I voted against my own party 292 times since I got elected to the state legislature. So I'm willing to call out what I view to be concerns by Republicans and Democrats. Like I'm not, you know, trying to falsify who I am to anybody. I'm a Republican. I'm running as a Republican. But really, deeper than that, I'm someone who's a conservative because I feel like the best solutions to the problems our country is facing are found by conservative solutions. But even beyond that, I have a very independent voting record. I have one of the highest records of voting against my own party as a sitting member of the legislature. I'm also somebody who's worked in a bipartisan way in the state legislature. I've had more than 30 bills signed into law with overwhelming bipartisan support by Republican Governor Rick Snyder and Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer. That's the type of direction I want to take to Washington, D.C. and represent families like mine and working people who really are struggling right now. Well, let's talk a little bit about representing voters and voters' interests. A new poll shows that somewhere a little more than 60% of Michigan voters approve of Proposal 3, the constitutional amendment that would enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. I want to make sure that I have your position on abortion correct, which is you are anti-abortion except for 
instances in life of the mother, correct? Well, I, I noticed in your question with Representative Slotkin, you did not challenge her position on abortion, but I am someone who is pro-life. I think that life is important and anything that we have that takes away from life is really, you know, tears at the fabric of life that we all ought to be uh, cognizant and aware of. You know, I think in the debate on abortion, what's often lost is that every single abortion results in the loss of a life. And that's something that is very serious. It's one of the reasons why I've been such an advocate for crisis pregnancy centers, something that uh, are really made up of volunteers who help women who are going through a, a crisis and really struggling uh, in some fashion or another with a unexpected or unwanted pregnancy. And instead of celebrating this option that women have, Alyssa Slack can try to silence them and erase them from the internet entirely. Beyond that, this Proposal 3 has fallen substantially in the polling since it very first was announced. And I think voters are beginning to question some of the real elements that are in here. You know, it, to your point, it enshrines a right to full reproductive freedom for every individual of the state. It doesn't just say adults. It doesn't just say abortion. It says full reproductive freedom. And every other state statute that conflicts with that would be completely nullified. Every late-term abortion limitation in Michigan would be nullified as a result of this proposal. And then it would allow for taxpayer-funded late-term abortions and that, to me, is just something that most voters and most people in Michigan don't support. So we will see where the voters go on this. I'm not someone who supports the proposal. My opponent has fully endorsed it. And the final thing I'll say about it is, look, there are very few countries in the entire world that allow for these late-term, dramatic late-term abortions beyond 18 or 20 weeks of pregnancy. The United States is one of only seven countries that allow that. And if Michigan passes this proposal, we would be part of the same league as China and North Korea. And I don't think most Michiganders want to be in that league. Some of the instances that you're talking about, many argue would still be up to the courts, that there is this gray area uh, about whether or not this I mean, ballot would If do. you read the language of it, and you're welcome to read it on the air to your v listeners yeah. if you yeah. choose. It says, you know, every individual has this complete and total right to reproductive freedom in all aspects. It doesn't limit it by age. So your 16 or 17-year-old daughter would be able to have an abortion without any parental consent whatsoever. The idea that, oh, the courts will figure it out. No, that's this is a constitutional amendment. And that doesn't leave room for the courts to really decide because it says what it says. And the proponents of this don't want you to even read it. They don't post the language of the ballot initiative on their own website. So I'm not comfortable saying, oh, we're going to throw this out there and just see what the courts say after mm -hmm. the fact. Well, as we wrap up here, one of the reasons why I got to this is really I'm curious about your thoughts that go into when you are deciding on a hard vote. When you said mm -hmm. earlier that you vote against your party however many times. 292. There you go. There and that's on my website. People can look that up every single one of the votes I've cast against my party. When you are voting against a party, and this goes back to this instance of this being such a swing district, when you take into consideration your own beliefs on issues, versus when you look at what voters in your district might want and how you represent that, even if your thoughts are different than what a majority of your constituents want. Yeah, and I think it, you start from the point of view that you collect input from people in your district. You know, I talk to people every single day just going about my daily life and, you know, encountering voters in my district. They're not short on giving me their feedback we get elected, whomever is elected in any election, and certainly for a two-year legislative term, the intent there is that we have a constant renewing 
effort to go out to get the will of the people and to earn their trust. And most people I speak to say, look, I'm not looking for somebody that I'm going to agree with 100% of the time on every single issue because that's impossible to match up. They want to know whether or not they can trust you to make a good decision on their behalf. There's that blend of individual principles as well as the representation of the people in your district. And if the people don't agree with you, then they will vote you out. I'm authentically who I am. People can look at that and make a determination. Again, if they want to continue down the path that America is on right now that's led us to where we're at, or if they want to elect someone who will be a check on the Biden administration and help put America on a different path and back on the right track. Republican State Senator Tom Barrett running against sitting Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan's new 7th Congressional District. Senator, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Joining me in studio is Sam Robinson, political reporter with Axios Detroit. Hey, Sam. Hey, Callan. Alyssa McMurtry with Gongwer News Service. How was the drive up today? Oh, it was just fantastic. Thanks for asking. And we have Alyssa Burr, politics reporter with MLive. How's it going? Hey, Colin. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start with what we just heard from Zoe and Tom Barrett. Alyssa Burr, you cover the state Senate for MLive. And as we just heard, Senator Barrett is believed to be the most conservative member of the chamber. What's your read on the district and whether they'd support someone with that record? Well, Colin, I think the track record, especially with, you know, Alyssa Slotkin being an incumbent Democrat, she kind of flipped the district um, from a red to a blue. But with recent redistricting, that also might be up in the air. And I think that this is a opportunity for Barrett to come back and kind of win over the district. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, vo- voters t- turn out in this new district. Um, and I, you know, as a political newcomer to the reporting scene here in the state of Michigan, um, I don't know much about Barrett's track record and how that could resonate. But I do think that um, MSU students that are kind of let into this district, it'll be really interesting to see how those young voters turn out and whether that could be the deciding factor and whether if he gets a win. Yeah, from one Alyssa to another, Alyssa McMurtry. Uh, Senator Barrett, obviously, saw you heard in that interview, he'd rather talk about the economy than abortion. Is yes. this message, hammering on inflation in the economy, talking about his family, is that going to resonate with voters? You know, it's, it's difficult because, you know, Roe v. Wade was overturned in the summer. Um, we're now in October. We're leading up to the election. Um, you know, gas prices are, it's, it's changing every day. It's going up. It goes down by maybe 10 cents. Um, inflation is still on the rise. It seems, you know, as much as the Fed adjusts interest rates, you know, we're still here um, dealing with record high inflation. So it, I think it does resonate with some voters, but I think in the back of their mind, unfortunately for a lot of Republicans, um, abortion is a topic for a lot of people. They're concerned about Okay, well, if abortion's gone, then what's next? Is it birth control? Um, I know when for a minute there was some more right wing, if you will, um, candidates talking about, you know, maybe we should get rid of condoms. And it was just it just seemed like too much for people. So I think that that is in the back of their minds. But unfortunately, you know, for Slotkin, it is it is true that when people go to the grocery store, you know, they see those prices. You got to cut back on certain things. You can't get the name brand bacon that you want. Um, so, you know, it, it, there's really no way to really know. But I think inflation, yeah, I think it might hit a chord with people. 
Yeah. And speaking of that inflation versus abortion issue, sticking with the reproductive uh, rights uh, part of this all part of this conversation. Sam, I'm curious. Senator Barrett, as you once again heard, was not the most excited to talk about abortion with Zoe. Um, in the governor's race, we've seen Tudor Dixon, the GOP nominee for governor, also squirm with this question. How are Republicans trying to message an issue that is so big this year? And Alyssa, feel free to jump in as well. Yeah, so we heard a lot uh, during the primary process, some really, you know, what we would all just as 50 years of of Roe being the precedent, kind of understand as extreme, you know, no um, exceptions for life of the mother, rape or incest. Tom Barrett is one of several Republicans nationwide to actually remove anti-abortion language from his campaign website after his primary win. I'm not certain right now if that language has been uh, put back or altered in in any sort of way. But what you saw across the country is um, Republicans sort of going to the moderate on this issue um, after their primaries. And and, uh, this, you know, Alyssa, as you, as you mentioned, is a, is a true toss-up race, one of the most important for Republicans attempting to take back control of the House of Representatives in D.C. And uh, as Ad Impact reports, it's the most expensive U.S. House race in the country. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and speaking of uh, Tom Barrett and his stance on abortion, currently under the issues section of the life, there is a small, there's a part where he talks about how he's been a consistent pro-life state senator or state legislator, but he doesn't necessarily go into his deep beliefs in all this. So Alyssa's, I'm curious as well. I'm starting with Alyssa Burr because you're directly to my left. Um, how do you see that really affecting the race, this reluctance or this willingness to talk about abortion and the walking back of some previous stances? Mm-hmm. I think, well, that's a great question, first of all. I think that, um, you know, since Roe v. Wade was rolled back, I think the issue of abortion is more black and white um, than we've seen previously. It's not really something that, uh, you know, legislators had to necessarily campaign for or against because it was, you know, federally it was protected. Um, now, with that being kind of up in the air, I see uh more Republican candidates kind of not wanting to speak out as much against abortion or, you know, speaking about their pro-life stance because it might hurt their chances at the polls. Um, so I, I think that, uh, yeah, it, it, it could be difficult for uh, Republicans um, who may want to keep those moderate voters and keep those independent voters um, and kind of bring in a, a new or what am I trying to say? I think it could uh, hurt or help their chances at the polls, and they don't want to jeopardize that. Yeah. Feel free to step in, too. Yeah, I agree. I think it is much more of a black and white issue now. Um, before, when it was federally protected, you know, you, I think there was more leeway for a no exceptions, or maybe I do have exceptions. Um, now it kind of seems like Republicans have kind of agreed upon no exceptions, um, except for the case of the life of the mother. Um, but it's it's also very interesting how the anti prop three ads are coming out and how they talk about how it's just too confusing. Um, I don't know. It's fascinating because it's about abortion. It's about reproductive freedom, as the group likes to call it. Um, so it's it's interesting that they don't necessarily say this would be, you know, this would continue killing babies like we hear from people. So it kind of definitely shows this shift of. You know, maybe let's just focus on this language is too confusing and who knows what's going to happen if it gets adopted, then there's going to be all these core issues. Um, and that just allows people to be like, you know what, maybe I don't want to deal with any more court drama, even though 
you know, they're not going to be dealing with it personally. But um, yeah, it's, you know, there's no talk about let's protect the life of the baby. When you see those ads, you see it's too confusing. It's too extreme. Yeah, if you're just joining us, I'm wrapping up the week in political news with Sam Robinson of Axios, uh, Alyssa McMurtry of Gong Renew Service, and Alyssa Burr with MLive. I want to turn now to a couple of other close congressional races. Tom Barrett is in this group called Young Guns um, from the National Republican Congressional Committee. These are up-and-comers to the party. Also in that group is John James, who's running in Macomb County, and John Gibbs, who's running on the west side of the seat. Uh, Alyssa. John James and John Gibbs are two of three black Republicans running for Congress in the state. The other is Martel Bivings in Detroit. So how are things looking right now for James and Gibbs? Yeah, I think that those are also two races that could be very up in the air. Um, Gibbs race in particular is very interesting to me because in the primary, Republican voters voted against their incumbent Meyer. And I think that that's an example of um, voting as a punishment due to Meyer uh, voting to impeach former President Trump. And Gibbs since then has kind of been left his own devices as far as support that he's gotten from Republicans. Um, He hasn't had the kind of uh, financial push that maybe you would see, especially from his um, Democratic uh, counterpart in that race. Um, James, I think, on the other hand, has more national notoriety notoriety than Marlinga. Um, Marlinga is uh, known in the district very well, but James has kind of a more national backing. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how voters turn out for those two candidates. Um, I had covered the uh, Marlinga and James race for MLive, And um, Marlinga, I think, has uh, kind of a more established base inside of the district, Um, whereas I think James, as far as being a congressional candidate, might be able to pull out the win. Um, And it's not something that I, I know that I can confidently say will turn out the same for Gibbs. Right. And before we move on, let's play some tape from John James. Uh, He appeared alongside uh, former President Donald Trump at a rally earlier this month. Uh, Let's hear some of that tape. We have to reach the people. We have the same task here today, patriots, to share the good news, lowercase g, about what being conservative really means. We need to preach and to sing outside in corridors and campuses and cities that have not heard the good news, little or case G. When people talk about CRT, we better tell them, you better be talking about critical redemption theory. You better be talking about a nation. You better be talking about a nation that is blessed from above, that after slavery, the evil was abolished, we grew. The Republican Party is the party of emancipation. The Republican Party is the party of women's suffrage. The Republican Party is the party of the civil rights movement. The Republican Party is the party of criminal justice reform. But we have to share the good news. We have to sing out there where nobody has heard it before. Alyssa McMurtry, you were at that rally. Yes, I was. What can you tell me about that speech? Well, honestly, they were so excited to see him. I think he was one of two people that got just, I mean, obviously everyone was standing because it was a rally, but it it felt like people were really giving him a standing ovation when he came out. 
um, which is good news for him because that is his district. But they they loved what he had to say. Um, and it's it's interesting, you know, he kind of brings up it's the party of emancipation. Um, I know in one of his ads before the primary, he was talking about, you know, my family broke free of Jim Crow. We survived Jim Crow. Um, it's it's fascinating because it's not necessarily something you, that you think Republican voters would care about. So it, it does bring about this question of, is there a shift about recognizing people of color and recognizing the struggles that they've been through? Um, but at the end of the day, they they loved what he had to say. And I think he he really struck a chord with them. He really said what they wanted to hear. I think another big thing that he does is he brings up God a lot. He brings up his Christian values, um, which, you know, makes him conservative enough that he doesn't have to go as far right as someone like John Gibbs. Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. He mentions a lot that you have seen from traditional from traditional conservative candidates. And at the same time, he's spoken a lot about things that you hear traditionally from black candidates. And mm-hmm. historically, there hasn't been a terrible, overwhelming amount of overlap between those two things. So for Sam, for you, when you hear that, how does this message play with white voters? He has to win over, especially in Macomb County. Well, I can tell you from hearing Martel Biving's speech up here in Lansing at that Capitol uh, rally that had Glenn Youngkin uh, post uh, Republican nominating convention, white voters, white Republican voters love black Republicans that they agree yes. with. It will get the loudest ovations mm-hmm. at rallies. It will get uh, voters wanting to come up and meet the candidate and mm-hmm. let them know that, hey, I've never met somebody like you. I want to get to know you. They love black Republicans. Um, and and I think, too, you hear it on the West Side with Gibbs. I mean, he is actually more, uh, comes from sort of more of an urban uh, community than John James does, talking about Gibbs over in Michigan's third congressional district running against Hillary Skolton. Um, Gibbs talks about how he is the grandson of sharecroppers down South. Uh, and he certainly uses... Um, his identity as a black man to his advantage um, in in terms of uh, his his politics. Yeah, and moving on a little bit from this conversation, though that is interesting to talk about Martel Bivings in Detroit, especially um, I was also at that rally with you. And yeah, it seemed like there was maybe a 15 minute pause before they brought up any other speakers because he received just so much applause and so much support from that crowd that I don't know if people necessarily wanted to follow that. Um, Go, sticking with you, Sam, because you cover Detroit so much, it's likely that Detroit's fa- not. It's likely facing no black representation in Congress for the first time in decades. Uh, the Democrat Shri Tanadar, uh, he is South Asian. Uh, here's what Shri said to me when I asked him about representing a majority black city. Yes, uh, you know, I want to be uh, part of uh, the Congressional Black Caucus. Whether I'm allowed to be a member or not, I don't know. But I'll work with the members very closely. You know, I will be reaching out to the Congressional Black Caucus. I'll be going down there, meeting uh, the members, and uh, constantly be fighting for my district. Yeah, so Martel Bivings, the Republican, as we've noted, is black. Is it possible we're going to see a close race there? No. Um, I'm going to say that confidently. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tree Tandar is going to be the um, um, next congressperson representing Detroit. He's going to end Detroit's nearly 70-year stretch of black representation in Congress. That's the longest in the nation after uh, Rep. 
Lawrence, Brenda Lawrence, announced her retirement this summer. And it's really interesting, you know, Shri is a Indian American entrepreneur. He's self-funding his own campaign. He's a state rep uh, in the House of Representatives here in Lansing. Uh, he's, he's self-funding his campaign. He's got $5 million uh, to do so. Bivings, you, we saw Colin, him go up to Ron Weiser, the chair of the party, and kind of give his pitch. He, he was talking to Ron Weiser about how much he would need uh, to make a dent, and he hasn't gotten it. He's, he's raised about $18,000. Um, but he's certainly an unconventional candidate. He does not believe in uh, election fraud uh, to the degree of it shaped the 2020 election. He believes Joe Biden was legitimately elected. Interesting anecdote, he wants to, if elected, galvanize his Republican colleagues to support reparations. He says Republicans should finish our work and bring reparations to African Americans. I am curious for you, Alyssa Burr. Uh, Bivings is not part of this Republican up-and-coming group called the Young Guns. Sam noted uh, the support he was seeking and possibly did not receive. Uh, what does that say, though, about national Republican investment around Detroit? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think that Detroit is a majority black area, and you know, black voters typically swing Democrat. Um, and I don't know if maybe they saw the writing on the wall and they de don't necessarily want to use the resources to um, campaign in that area. I think that it's, you know, could be it could be more prevalent simply because we have seen this shift of, OK, there are more black candidates in Republican races, um, maybe just looking for representation, maybe just looking for an opening or a window to be um, seen and to come out as a uh, strong candidate for the party. Um, so even though, you know, Bivings wasn't a part of this um, national organization that you spoke about, uh, I think that he just, you know, as a black man in this race for the GOP party, might leave that window open for future candidates as well. Right. Well, we need to take a quick break. If you're just joining us, I'm wrapping up the week in politics with Alyssa Burr, who you just heard from MLive, Sam uh, Robinson from Axios Detroit, and Alyssa McMurtry from Gongware News Service. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Stay with us. This is It's Just Politics on Stateside, and you heard it on Michigan Radio. This is It's Just Politics on Stateside. Welcome back. I'm Colin Jackson, alongside Sam Robinson, political reporter with Axios, Alyssa McMurtry of Gongwa News Service, and Alyssa Burr to my left of MLive. Now, Alyssa M., picking up the conversation about Detroit and representation in Detroit, former President Donald Trump got more votes in the city than Detroit typically awards Republican candidates for president. Should the GOP be investing more in pulling votes from the city? You know, Alyssa, Alyssa Burr brought up a good point. It, um, black majority cities typically vote Democrat. But like you said, more people voted for Trump than expected. Um, but I, I think it's difficult because Trump is, he's clearly not a traditional candidate. Um, and I think a lot more people voted for him than you would have expected just because they either liked something that he said or they liked that he was new. Um, so it's, you, you would think that they would hop on that opportunity, but I think because 
you know, we're not going to see Martel Bibbings take that seat. We're not going to see that be a close race. Um, I think they're hesitant to invest more in that. I think that's, I think the fact that Trump got those votes, that's because of Trump, honestly. Yeah, I agree. I think Trump was a very popular guy among uh, urban folks. I mean, we all have Instagram accounts and we see the hip hop channels, you know, saying, I Look at what you complain about Joe Biden and, and really just being a, a right wing parroter. It's like, man, I'm trying to get my music information here. But, you know, I, I think um, there there is going to be investment happening. Um, when you talk to Wayne Bradley, he is a black Republican, former um, uh, guy who used to work for the state party. Uh, talks about how just because, you know, big cities historically vote Democrat, that doesn't mean there aren't black conservatives living in those cities. It just means that those black conservatives uh, you know, aren't a part of the uh, electoral politics process yet. You know, yet, you know, because those political uh, systems in, in Detroit and other uh, majority black cities, they're led by Democrats. They produce other Democrats. And it makes it a challenge to establish a, a grassroots base in those places. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not there. Yeah. And so going to you, Alyssa Burr, um, there has been outcry. You know, we talked about this idea for the first time in basically 70 years, Detroit's going to go without black congressional representation. Can you like, can you explain why does this matter to people that may not be familiar with Detroit in the situation? So first and foremost, let me say black Detroiters love their city, love their city. They come out in droves to vote anything having to do with their city. They're there. And especially when um, the Independent Redistricting Commission uh, finalized the redistricting maps in uh, December, um, black Detroiters, they saw the writing on the wall. They knew that uh, their representation was at jeopardy. And I think the love that they have for their city is very prevalent. And, you know, Sam was talking about Tanadar earlier. They are willing and ready to hold him accountable for any policy issues um, that he brings forth. And that's something that he definitely needs to be aware of because Detroit sometimes, um, being that's a majority black city, gets for, can sometimes get forgotten about. And, you know, a lot of these policies hit home for these black folks. So um, that's something that he should 100% be ready for if he wins this seat and uh, be prepared for, you know, black Detroiters to to be involved in the political process and the policies that he puts forth. Yeah. So from there, let's talk about some of the differences between the GOP and the Democrats' approach to lieutenant governor over the past couple cycles. You know, last time in 2018, uh, Garland Gilchrist, the current lieutenant governor with uh, serving with uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, he was touted as being the first black LG in the state. Now, this year, we saw something different. Uh, Shane Hernandez, a former state representative, is running as the first Latino-American LG candidate uh, to be a Republican. Uh, but the Republicans aren't necessarily talking about that or making it a big deal, breaking a barrier. Uh, why not? Like, isn't that something appealing for potential voting blocks, Sam? Well, you know, if you ask Republicans, it's not about the color of their skin. It's about what they do. And when you push further, it's like, well, hey, wouldn't a young Asian person see a Asian man playing basketball and perhaps be inspired by Jeremy Lin's? You know, it's like we, we it's a very simple thing to understand the value of representation where now I think for the first time that I've experienced it, you do have, because of these three black congressional candidates and 
Um, you obviously have Christina Caramo um, as well running as Secretary of State as a Republican against Jocelyn Benson. She is a black woman um, from the Metro Detroit area. Um, you know, you have this newfound value being placed by people like, as I mentioned earlier, Gus Portella. He's a communications director um, and a Latino man for the uh, Michigan Republican Party. I think, you, you know, you have the ethnic chair there. Um, Bernadette Smith, I believe is her name. Um, you have folks on the ground talking about why it is important to center black voices um, in conservative messaging. Yeah, and with that in mind, you mentioned Gustavo Portel of the GOP. Um, when I was asking him for sources about the story, he had a lot of suggestions of people I could talk to about diversity within the party. Um, there's really that seems to be something that they're really working on getting more representation within the party. Uh, so, and like you meant to your point, it's not surprising that voters may want to support someone who looks like them. So, uh, for you, Alyssa McMurtry, uh, what do you see candidates like Gibbs, James, Hernandez, Caramo? Uh, what are they doing well when it comes to appealing to communities of color? Also, don't want to leave out Bivings as well. I don't. I. Oh, I don't know if they are doing well appealing to communities of color. I think. I think they definitely get the black conservatives for sure. I think they do a great job with that. I think they kind of create a space where, you know, more black people that were either moderate or wanted to leave the Democratic Party um, now can be like, you know what, somebody else is running that looks like me. Clearly, this is, you know, the best time for me to switch over. Um, but as far as communities of color, I think it's I think they've kind of cracked the door open. I don't know if it's necessarily been opened all the way. Um, for people to feel more comfortable switching parties um, solely for one candidate or a few candidates. Um, but I think, you know, I think they they do make some big steps as far as not being afraid to talk about their race. Um, I don't think we would have seen that from black conservatives a few years ago. I think even the fact that John James can mention Jim Crow in an ad, I think, is some pretty big steps. Um and talk about how this is a party of linking, this is a party of emancipation, um, and that gets a round of applause from people. Um, I think it's it's baby steps, but I think you know people of color are feeling a little more open to looking into conservative ideals, um, particularly the economy is a big one. I think anytime John James brings up supply chain issues, um, inflation, gas prices, you know they can kind of feel like you know what I'm kind of irritated with that too. And it's nice to hear it from a black man and not just from, you know, one of the millions of white men out there that run for these seats. Can I note, too? Absolutely. Um, off of Alyssa's point, I feel like Republicans may have um, missed the opportunity here as far as reaching communities mm -hmm. of color. Uh, I know Tudor Dixon said in the gubernatorial debate the other week um, that that's probably the first time that a lot of people have seen her or heard from her. And the same could be said about Hernandez. Um, and being that he could well, he could potentially be, you know, the first uh, Latino lieutenant, lieutenant governor. Um, and they haven't had as much fundraising um, or as much luck fundraising uh, in the gubernatorial race. They really could have used that fact to their advantage in order to get their um, campaign out to these communities. Mm -hmm. Going off. Alyssa M's point about how well is it working, you asked her, you know, I think we can look at who are who's winning, right? The candidates uh, that win, P 
people of color candidates that win. They're all winning outside of urban black districts. Yeah. So is it really happening uh, in those places where the black people are? No. And I'm thinking of you know a guy like Dalen Howard, who's a 26-year-old Owasso guy uh, running for the seat held by Ben Frederick. Um, you know, he certainly fares a lot better than a guy like Martel Bivings, obviously two different legislative state race versus congressional race there. But, you know, we see the, the, the folks that are winning these black or people of color candidates, they're, they're winning outside of black areas. Republicans do seem to have tapped into a new voting block among communities of color, especially in Dearborn, uh, with their focus on education issues and the so-called parental rights in schools. Um, starting with you, Alyssa McMurtry, uh, what are the issues they're focused on that seem to be playing well with many parents around the state? Uh, so I actually attend the State Board of Education meetings uh, once a month. Uh, very exciting stuff. Uh, people are very passionate when they come to the public comments. And the thing that they talk about is social emotional learning, uh, critical race theory, and sex, uh, gender identity, um, any, any LGBT rights. Um, they kind of have issues with how sexual they feel things have gotten. Um, and I think it's that's a good way to get parents who are concerned about their child's education. I think that's a good way to get people involved in your party um, is to kind of frame it as, you know, let me come in and let me read the section of a book where there's this graphic sexual scene. Um, and, you know, they like to call it pornography. Uh, usually what they read, though, is typically scenes of sexual assault so I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to call that pornography but it is graphic enough that it gets people upset um, and they say you know these are in our libraries your kids at any age can read it right your kids could grab this book read it and we need to stop that we need to not have this be accessible um, and I think especially for more religious families more conservative families um, that is definitely going to hit a chord um, also these are parents who maybe they were necessarily upset about the 2020 lockdowns, 2021 lockdowns too, um, and having to stay at home and teach their kids school instead of, you know, being able to send them off. So that combined with now there's there are these books that are just so sexually explicit. Um, I think they found a real niche there that kind of goes beyond any particular community because, you know, you're always going to have those types of parents in any area, urban, suburban, wherever. Right. And when we talk about this, it's important to note that some community organizations around Dearborn as well, uh, for one, the Council of American Islamic Relations and the organizers of the Sahur Ramadan Festival, which is a popular festival every year, um, self-explanatorily around Ramadan, um, have weighed into the issue as well. Uh, Sam, what is the upshot of all this? Yeah. So, I mean, I think you have a serious discussion about um, what should be in libraries on paper. You know, should second graders be able to see uh, uh, genitalia? Uh, and then you have a separate conversation going on about LGBTQ affirming materials in schools. Um, a number of books have been put under review by Dearborn Public Schools, the third largest district in the state of Michigan, one of them, including a book called This Book is Gay, uh, was available um, prior to this controversy in media centers across the district. And uh, we saw over the last couple of weeks hundreds of 
folks packed into these school board meetings to protest these books, shutting one of the meetings down. Actually, they had to reconvene one of them um, in a in a smaller middle school auditorium. Um, and, and they even tried to ban posters and signage. People were putting homophobic um, uh, rhetoric on signage, some of which we saw in Arabic. And I think that's what's playing in Dearborn, certain members of Dearborn's uh, Muslim uh, Arab American community are are certainly using this and saying, um, you know, reaching out to these organizations and saying, "Hey, like, look at this. This is this goes against our faith." Yeah, and Alyssa B, uh, could we be looking at the start of a political shift for an Arab American voting bloc? Possibly, I wouldn't be able to say that a hundred percent confidently, only because whereas um, Republicans, this is a uh, Uh, campaign issue for them, you know, parents' rights. But I think that these parents that we're seeing come out to these school board meetings speaking out against this uh, material, I feel um, aren't thinking about politics. It's not politically motivated. They're more so thinking about their children uh, and and their kids' well-being. Um, So while Republicans might, you know, reach out that arm to be like, hey, you know, we we have similar values, we're focused on similar things, I don't know if um, that's a big enough push to bring them out to the ballots. And you even saw some of the folks uh, pushing against uh, the school board pushing against these books actually push back at some of the Republican candidates that came out. Hassan Shami, he is the founder and organizer of the Ramadan Suhoor Festival. You know, he even called out uh, Matt DiPerno, Christina Caramo, um, as well as Stephen Elliott, the candidate running against Democratic Rep Rashida Tlaib for Congress in the 12th district. As like, he said, yeah, they're using this as a, as a political thing. You know, we are separate from from this. Um, but they certainly um, are, are uniting on this front, and Republicans see it as another example of, hey, you know, look how ridiculous Democrats are. Yeah, it's a fascinating, conversa- fascinating conversation on a deeply complex issue. Uh, before we go, though, I do want to wrap up today hearing from you all about something very personal to each of us in this room, which is being a black journalist in what's typically been a historically white profession, um, especially in political reporting. So we're as together, we're part of a generation of young black reporters in a space that, like I said, was previously occupied mainly by white men. So how for each of you? How has your perspective changed your newsrooms and reporting, starting with Alyssa B, because you're the newest on the political block? <laughs> I am. I am. Um, I've been doing uh, political reporting on the state legislature for Live for about six months now. And I think that um, being that we bring diverse perspectives, both racially and just with our age, you know, we... Uh, bringing in a new perspective. And I think that that translates to our readers as far as getting in new readership in the material that we're covering. Um, There's certain bill packages and stories that, of course, um, you know, resonate with a wide range of Michiganders. But I'm glad that, you know, I can see, uh, you know, the the policies and the laws that are put in place that may affect my community that wouldn't typically get enough coverage. And I'm especially proud of Sam. You know, he's kind of made a name of for himself um, throughout Michigan and kind of the next Phil Lewis. If you're not familiar with Phil Lewis, he's like a Twitter um, personality uh, editor for the Huffington Post. And I think together we kind of just bring a new energy 
um, to political reporting as a whole. Yeah, Sam, the the Twitter star. <laughs> yeah, man, thanks for that shout out. Man, shout out to Phil Lewis, man. I got a chance to meet him uh, last year just walking down Woodward. I live downtown Detroit, um, and it's been fun. You know, I think I've been doing this since whew, 2019, 20 now. Um, obviously, you know, shout out. If y'all remember me from uh, coming up, you remember how I got arrested covering the, the Proud Boys protest in Kalamazoo. You remember um, my reporting on, on Jewel Jones, the troubled state lawmaker out of Inkster. Uh, you know, and, and I'm hoping to, to tell more, more stories, man. It, it's so important that we have um, our voice on platforms like this one on platforms like MLive where you get, you know, 500 million people clicking on your stuff every month. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think it's been fun so far. It's interesting how, you know, people react to you. I think a lot of the times Democrats think that you're going to be your best friend and Republicans think that you're out to get them. Um, and that's because of the conversations that we've had over just the historical, um, you know, uh, ideas that, that uh we've had for the last six years post-civil rights movement in our country. Um, but, you know, our job is to deliver the news. It's not to be on anybody's side, and that's what I try to do at least. Yeah, and Alyssa M., you're in a lot of these state agency meetings. You mentioned uh, yes. Board of Education. Uh, what's your experience been like? You know, I, I definitely agree with Sam. I think it is, you know, being black people do assume as Democrats, you think, okay, well, this is great. You know, I'm going to have another outlet. Um, and Republicans are, okay, this is someone that I'm going to have to really convince. Um, but at the end of the day, we are reporters. Um, but obviously our identity does come into play, but not necessarily in the way that I think a lot of people think it does. Um, I think it has some more so do with, you know, trying to to find, you know, the one black person in that crowd and be like, okay, what are you doing here? You know, like what, what brought you out to this event? Um, and actually just elevating real life black voices, not just the political ones, not just the polished ones, um, but just listening to hearing, um, listening and hearing from um, actual people of color. Um, and it's it's definitely, I would say it, it has its difficulties for sure. Um, there are there are some things that you you're kind of like, do I really have to write about this? <laughs> but that's that's part of the job. <laughs> um, is that you you kind of find a way to be like, okay, how can I write about this from an angle where it's like, even though I know this is a misrepresentation of, you know, my community or another community of color, um, how can I write about this where I'm, I'm still relaying the message that someone wants me to, but I am, you know, making sure that the truth is in there as well. That's our show for today. Today's podcast was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on Stateside include Mike Blank, Ronya Kabansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Our theme song is by 14KT. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Colin Jackson. Have a great weekend.